Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Today I'm joined by Chelsea Levy, Certified Intuitive Eating Counsellor, Haze Aligned, Anti-Diet and Fat Positive. Within Chelsea's work, she uses health at every size principles, working with individuals with eating disorders and disordered eating through weight-inclusive therapy, body image healing and intuitive eating. Chelsea joins us today to discuss her role in supporting individuals with eating disorders and how we can abolish weight stigma so commonly observed in recovery. Hello Chelsea! Hello, Hannah. How are you today? Yeah, I'm really good, thank you. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Yeah, it's snowing here in New York City and it's beautiful. Happy to be here, warm and cozy inside. Oh, that is just gorgeous. I went to New York, gosh, seven years ago, I want to say, and we went for um, just, we went on the 28th of December. And then we were there for New Year's and we were in Central Park and we got like one speck of snow. And my mum was like, my dreams come true. I'm in New York and it's snowing. <laughs> yeah, it's really magical. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, you're very lucky that that's your, well, I suppose it doesn't snow every day, but being in New York every day, you've got a lot more opportunity. Next time you're here, you'll have to come for beagles. Oh, okay. That's a deal. I absolutely will. <laughs> Um, so thank you so much for joining me today um, I'm really excited to kind of chat to you about um, all the things that we've kind of mentioned in your introduction um, but I wanted to start by understanding what your role is so as an eating disorder dietitian and intuitive eating counsellor just for the listeners what what does that entail? Yeah absolutely so as a Eating disorder dietitian, uh, it's usually on a multidisciplinary team, meaning that there's a therapist, um, psychiatrist, uh, GP, um, and some other specialists, depending on the situation, like gastroenterologist or endocrinologist. And so I'm playing a role that's really collaborative and supporting my clients to sort of the week to week outpatient setting. So I might see different folks who are stepping down from higher level of care or step, you know, going to step up, um, sort of, yeah, always in motion of depending on where you are in that, in that healing process. But my role may be, um, some meal support, some sort of lift in understanding what sort of nutrition minimums look like safety around movement. Um, I mean, those are some of the like basics that we would expect, but it, it's also a lot of body image healing work that overlaps with the therapy. Um, a lot of sort of unlearning of diet culture and ideas about body ideals and beauty ideals and the science and debunking in dietetics and nutrition that maybe we've learned, um, something that's not factual or helpful to our health. So, um, yeah, every session, and work with clients can look different, but but those are some of the pieces of what sessions might look like with somebody who's working with eating disorder recovery. It's also, uh, you know, weight inclusive. There's no promotion of weight loss in any of my work, whether or not somebody is healing from an eating disorder. That's the majority of clients I see, but also sort of chronic dieting and intuitive eating, that unlearning of diet culture space. Um, is really focused on enhancing your sort of relationship with food and movement and moving away from that weight-centric model. Mm. And I mean, this is, I feel like a big question, Um, but I guess in the society that we do live in, there is so much focus on weight and being a certain weight or being a certain size. So how, how do you support somebody in, I guess, not only, I mean, I guess, would that come with accepting yourself? But I've always thought I could, you know, be happy in my body, but then going out into the world and there's still all those comments. Like, I think that's the bit I would, I think that I'm always like, how do we navigate that part? But I guess generally overall, how do you support someone with that? Yeah, 
That's a great question. So how to navigate the world that is weight stigmatized medically, socially, um, just sort of capitalistically the way we like, we are navigating a world that's selling us and promoting beauty products, which, you know, like it's all internalized and we all have that individual choice. Like, do I want to shave my legs or shave my armpits or wear mascara or, you know, I'm, I'm talking sort of like uh, ideals in, in gender femme roles, but I also work with um, gender affirming care. So what I'd like to talk about when it comes to weight stigmatizing society and medical space is to focus on weight neutrality, um, you know, and body neutrality that we can focus on taking care of ourselves, having body respect. We can brush our teeth without liking the way our teeth look or our smile. And this, we can do the same thing around food and body and movement and the clothes we wear every day and how we sort of interact in our body with other people. We can, you know, wear clothing that fits us. We don't have to like love the way it looks, but it can be functioning over sort of the form of, of how it is. And I think, you know, that's the first step. Like we don't have to love an aesthetic to respect it and care for it. But then I think we also have to continue to unpack like what, who decides what is attractive or beautiful mm -hmm. and, um, and like how that gives power to um, individuals. Um, so yeah, there's many, many layers to that. And it really depends on the situation, but no matter how much healing we do, we live in a society that has these standards, right? Of um, the thin ideal or like a certain weight that people should be to be healthy in the medical model, which is highly problematic. So we're really going like upstream um, against the grain. And so um, it's like really day to day and week to week baby steps. But I, <clears throat> for my role, it's like, I really want to be an advocate to my clients to understand um, that they have more power than they think. And like, they can live a different way, you know, just because that's like, is a societal norm doesn't mean that we need to go with that flow. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really interesting what you were saying there. And I've never really, I guess, thought about it in like, who actually determines what is seen as attractive or what is beautiful, that kind of thing. But there's so many things that you kind of, I guess, feel like you have to follow because that's just, you know, what I guess is the the quote unquote norm. Um, and as I was kind of thinking, I was thinking about often when people do kind of break out from the norm, let's say, and they, you know, are comfortable in their own skin, there's often quite a lot of negativity towards that in, in it's almost as if you know you've had the confidence to say this is who I am and you know I'm happy with that so why why do you think that that is so why are why is society really flummoxed at why people in larger bodies or in a sort of beauty standard and confidence that isn't centered why is that upsetting to society around them. I think there it's twofold. One, uh, the medical model wor worldwide is not weight inclusive. So it's sort of this idea that if someone perhaps is in a body that's larger, that they're saying that this is okay, that, that it's okay to, you know, it's, it's not going with sort of the centering of um, healthism, of, of leaning into what our medical model thinks would be good behavior around health, which is really problematic if we understand the science and evidence. Weight, weight inclusive care really is taken outside of your your weight, right? So I think it's a threat to to like to see that in medicine to some like oh you're sort of performing in a unhealthy way or like rebellious. That's my what I think is a perception. One and then two is um, you're 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 presenting in an othered way like in a beauty standard so people just can't wrap their head around people being confident in something that's not the norm or centered um I think that confuses people and um because they don't understand they yeah. have a set of rules yeah I, I'm sure there are other reasons but those are the two main ones that come to mind yeah I I think I agree and and it was interesting when you said about um I like the medical model and almost that perception of by 
you know, the weight inclusiveness, the reason people or society or whoever don't want that is because they they think from that that the, that would be the mod- medical model saying that being fat is okay. Right. Exactly. But that but that in in itself, I think, is a really a really difficult place to sit because by saying that, that's saying that being fat is not okay. So it's mm-hmm. almost like by them saying, oh, but I don't want you to say that because then you're saying that fat is okay. By that, they're saying, but fat is not okay. But then, exactly. like you said, the science behind it doesn't say that. So it's a mess, basically. It, we have a lot of work to do. And I, a lot of the evidence is there. I mean, there is no omittance of this, of a lot of data because, uh, research doesn't include enough diversity of size and ethnicity and or length of time. So, you know, oftentimes we'll, we'll see weight loss studies show um, the ability for people to lose weight, but then within two to five years, they gain it back or more. And that's not necessarily followed up or documented or highlighted um, in a weight centric model, but we have that evidence. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, it's a, a slow needle being pushed against the grain every day to, yeah, sort of centering other sort of medical models. Yeah. And I mean, I guess that ties into eating disorders because in terms of the diagnostics and treatment and stuff, that is so weight focused. So mm-hmm. if you're working with your clients, how is that different to maybe, I mean, if it is different to, to the norm of, is there a, I'm guessing there's not a weight focus, but if there is, how does that work? Yeah, that's a great question, Hannah. I think it, the short answer is it really depends on the individual and the situation. But for me, for my work, I mean, sometimes we do use scales for um, monitoring someone's like, you know, minimum weights. We don't want people to go under a certain weight reflective to their individual needs um, toward I don't know, maybe they're like altered labs or function, um, you know, blood pressure, a lot of other sort of anthropometric data that we would want to monitor. So in some cases, it's helpful to know the number as a clinician, mm-hmm. um, but it's certainly not the number one focus, um, certainly long-term for healing. It, it's not about the number, right? It, it's just another piece of data that helps me help other people see what's happening in these different moments of healing. Um, and that's not absolutely necessary in every case. It just depends on the situation. They're making um, scales that are, have no number on them and you can, they connect to the clinician digitally um, wow. through Bluetooth. Yeah, so um, through the pandemic, that was something that I um, have been using with my clients who I work with virtually. And uh, that has worked really well. That's yeah. amazing. Mm-hmm. that yeah wow I didn't I didn't know about that but I've seen little cards that people can have um that are like please don't tell me my weight or whatever um but that sounds mm-hmm. even better. I do have a question about that because um and I guess this is just coming from my personal experience but when I was in recovery um they when I used to go to the hospital they said that I needed to see the weight in order to mm-hmm. become comfortable um, and mm-hmm. almost navigate the the I guess the psychology behind it in that I needed to then by knowing the weight the weight then became not the focus because I was okay with it do you mm-hmm. think does that make sense and do you agree with that mm-hmm. or do you think you don't need to know it at all I personally don't think it it is helpful for people to know their weight at all um, I do understand that in eating disorder recovery there are um, models of exposure therapy where um, clients in higher level of care and also in outpatient settings are encouraged to see their weight over time so it has less of a meaning. And for some people, that can work. Um, however, I think it's, it, I personally am not a fan of it. Um, I work with a lot of people who are, have like long and enduring um, anorexia and um, binge eating disorder and, and other, I mean, I work with uh, ARFID and bulimia and all, all types of eating disorders, but 
um, when I work with, in particular with long and enduring anorexia, I don't think personally seeing the number is helpful. Um, there, there's usually a lot of trauma and um, that number just keeps us really stuck in that pattern of trying to control um, this external piece of information when what's really needs healing is this, you know, something internally. So um, yeah, I'm not a proponent of having eating disorder patients see their weight so that they can be comfortable with it in like a doctor's office in the future. I think most doctor's offices, like you could at the very least get on a, if they really need to see your weight, for example, there's like a few different instances where we really do need to see the weight, um, anesthesia, anesthesia, um, yeah, getting anesthesia mm-hmm. in like a surgery setting, you would need to know someone's weight mm-hmm. so that you can dose the medicine properly. Okay. So that would be like an example of when someone maybe with healing from an eating disorder might need to see it, um, or ha- not see it, but get weighed. So they could turn around in mm-hmm. that instant. They don't need to see it. Um, a lot of the sort of rationale in these eating disorder settings is you, you're going to have to see it at some point. So you, we want you to be comfortable. And I, I, I frankly think that's not the case. We can work with, with, you know, doctors and hospitals that you don't have to see it. It does get complicated because then it's on your paperwork. And then when you go look at your other labs, it's there. So I think it does require a little bit of like navigation of being creative, like calling a doctor's office ahead of time to see if they can like black out the number um, before they put it into the portal. And if that's not something they can do, like, can my partner print out my labs and then, you know, black it out or like a friend, like, you know, and so then there's like layers of like emotional labor that have to be done to create this protection. It's imperfect, but there are ways to sort of manage it. And that would, those would be some of my recommendations in those instances. Yeah, I suppose uh, you, you've made a really good point and that's not something that I thought about before, but I guess the the only reason why they say that you need to sort of be exposed to it and be okay with getting yourself weighed is because of when it happens again. But like you right. said, if you know, if those instances are avoidable, because um, I was just thinking in my head, I was like, you know, becoming comfortable in your body, like when you said it, the exposure um like doing mirror work and looking at yourself in your in the in the mirror and kind of getting comfortable you can't really avoid something like that like you are gonna see yourself but then something being weighed actually Mm -hmm. you know day to day you don't need to be weighed every day so no yeah no no it's made a lot more sense yeah plus like day to day knowing your weight is really not very informative because there's a lot of fluid shifts and um, hormones and electrolytes are shifting, which impact your fluids. Um, uh, your, we eat food, our digestion and absorption take time before we excrete waste. And these all have an impact on our day to day weight. And it's not very informative to like telling you about your health. Yeah. And so if we are thinking about health, what do you think is more informative? Yeah, I mean, there's like multiple pieces, but I think sort of um, eating patterns, um, sleep patterns, how we manage our stress, um, our like other lab work, um, like our iron status, our electrolyte status. um, 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 There's many others, but like, there's just, there's a bunch of things to look at. And oftentimes, you know, because the human body is really resilient, your labs may look totally normal when you're mm. in an active eating disorder. And there's a lot of sort of, um, I think, internal struggle with some clients about like, am I sick enough? If, I'm, if my labs look normal and I'm not that low in weight, like maybe I'm not that sick. And I think that, so that's when it comes back to like the eating patterns and behaviors that we use. Um, can be more indicative of like how our mental health is, is doing. And in terms of our physical health, it is, we continue to like do our best to monitor those labs, um, even if they are within range, because we might fall within a range, but um, err on the low side or something. And so um, knowing like those patterns is helpful to really like see the nuance in a, in a patient. And so working closely with um, a doctor and a dietitian to see those changes 
could be what helps somebody recognize like mm-hmm. that's in an eating disorder actively that mm-hmm. they yeah are like really in need of of shifts in their labs yeah I think you've made a really good point there in terms of like looking at the behaviors because I think you know particularly for anorexia there's a big focus on weight and then you know then you've got atypical anorexia which is basically exactly the same thing but just not the low weight but the behaviors are the same so um I think absolutely what you've said you know looking at those behaviors rather than the weight would be so much more supportive to somebody and I feel like people would get a lot more help for their struggles if there wasn't that focus on weight I think so yeah so um when I kind of introduced you I said that you were anti-diet fat positive and haze aligned so if people are listening what what does that mean in what does that mean to you yeah absolutely so anti-diet first I think language is really important so I'll try to just unpack it all Mm -hmm. meaning that I'm I'm anti-diet culture not any individual dieting not that I'm a proponent of diet for weight loss but I'm not anti- person dieting and anti-diet culture because it is weight-centric, fatphobic, weight-stigmatizing, and harmful to society and individuals with eating disorders especially. So we're all impacted and touched. So that's the first piece, the anti-diet culture. And then um, haze being health at every size, meaning really essentially weight-inclusive care, um, enhancing health, enhancing somebody's, um, you know, movement, um, all in relation to their overall health unrelated to their body size. Mm -hmm. Um, so that, you know, meaning not that we're healthy at any size, you know, like I might not be the healthiest at a lower weight. That might mean something's wrong. I might have some sort of malnourishment. Mm -hmm. Um, just meaning that I can, uh, focus on behaviors that are health achieving um to take care of myself at any size no matter what size I am I can take care of myself Mm. yeah and I think it's always it's always something that I'm really like passionate to to explain because I think a lot of the time there's I think because of the fat phobia and kind of this stigma we have against larger bodies this sort of health at every size movement from what I've seen has had quite a lot of negatives towards it um but like you said it's I mean the way that I see it is that it's not making an assumption that based on someone's size they're healthy or unhealthy it's like you said looking at everything else that contributes to your health or is an indicator of health rather than literally just looking at somebody's size and being like okay well they're healthy and healthy or whatever just based on what they look like um Mm. and I think in a sense I don't know particularly of health at every size but I suppose I mean I guess it does massively tie into eating disorders actually because you know if somebody had a larger body or a quote-unquote normal size body you maybe wouldn't look at them and think they have an eating disorder but then somebody in a um you know maybe a more malnourished body you might assume that they have an eating disorder but actually none of those you know somebody in a large body could have an eating disorder or somebody in a malnourished body might not have an eating disorder it might just be their right. pattern right yeah we need to do better at screening for eating disorders asking the right questions um in medical settings to catch it more and we're not catching it uh, in people that are in larger bodies or any sort of diverse ethnicity um, or race, we, we see um, more screenings for, you know, the standard um, archetype of an individual that is like white and thin and usually feminine, like a, a female identifying. And so um, but we know in statistics that every anybody can have an eating disorder, any age, any gender, um, yeah, any race. And mm-hmm. race is a construct, but you know um, that there's yeah that it happens everywhere. And we just we need more screening and more um, understanding of that, especially mm-hmm. um, when I'm thinking about as you mentioned, atypical anorexia is anorexia just 
in people that are in larger bodies and that gets missed so often in the medical community. Mm. And I think it's almost, um, particularly with atypical anorexia, it's almost a barrier to treatment because it's, I don't know, I think a lot of the time people that get diagnosed with atypical anorexia don't get the treatment that they deserve because it's almost not seen as as urgent um, as somebody that might present with anorexia, which I think is such a damaging thing because then people go on for years with an eating disorder with, with that lack of support. And, you know, I think it would same you know like you said in ethnic minorities or somebody maybe in a larger body is do you think that there needs to be more research or do you think the research is there and we're just not implementing it I think we need more research but we we already know that eating disorders exist in every like everywhere there's just not um in every country in every age range you know population but we we don't see them getting the care, the care they need because they're not there's not a screening or understanding of that risk in in these settings. Um, it's also about um, I mean I can't speak globally about this, but like in the United States, it is a medical model. Like a lot of this is you know like our healthcare system. <laughs> you know we have to we pay for our health insurance and and it's a money making machine and so. Um, you know, somebody who is, doesn't appear malnourished, doesn't, it's not understood that they're as um, at high of a risk, even though we can't, you and I just sort of spoke about health at every size and you can't know somebody's health by looking at them um, for the most part. I mean, there's some like sort of extreme outlier mm-hmm. um, examples, but generally speaking, we really cannot make these assumptions. Um, yes. Yes. We need more research though, for sure. Yeah, definitely. I think, I mean, I think it was an obvious question, but I just kind of wanted to explore your um, kind of opinion anyway. But I think absolutely. I think, unfortunately, in Eaton Sodders, the research has focused on, like you said, a white middle class, if you want to have classes, um, I guess, white privileged female. And, you know, whilst, whilst they are our population, that you know could be at risk of an eating disorder there's so many other avenues that we need to explore um and so I guess with with that in mind I wanted to talk about um you know recovery a bit more in a larger body because I think um one thing you know that again like if we're going to talk about anorexia um just as an example would be like weight restoration and things like that so Mm -hmm when we're thinking about recovery in a larger body um yeah so thinking about recovery in a larger body is recovery in a larger body you know is eating disorder treatment just generally eating disorder treatment or are there components in a larger body that are different to if somebody was let's say needing to weight restore I mean I think that there's some criteria for everyone across the board, which is eating patterns, right? Like if we're not regularly eating, no matter what our size, that is a marker for, you know, um, there's like a screening of, of need for more healing. So that's something we continue to evaluate and monitor as a clinician. Um, and you know, like what are the barriers to getting consistent and adequate nourishment, um, first and foremost, um, yeah and and then sort of like supporting that those barriers in the different scopes of work on the multidisciplinary team um but yeah i mean i would say that probably most clinicians who don't have an understanding or work with like a diverse population and size um might have a harder time because of their own bias Mm -hmm. um in understanding what to do exactly not because they don't have the like sort of um, education to do it, but just like, it's not sort of centered, um, in the work. So, I mean, you know, there are other markers, for example, if you're working with a larger body, um, woman, um, who menstruates and they're not menstruating, that could be a sign of malnourishment, you know, um, but it depends on the situation, of course, like, you know, like what is their age and, um, 
yeah, are they over-exercising? Are they under-eating? Like, what is happening here to cause that sort of, uh, yeah, marker um, to come up as as part of something to monitor? But I think it really is individual. Um, and sometimes there aren't obvious ones, even in, in smaller bodies. Like I said before, you can be really resilient in your blood work because the human body is resilient um, and be, you know, um, binging and purging or restricting or some iteration or um, in ARFID, for example, maybe eating like less variety of foods, um, but you're still not showing any sort of malnourishment. I mean, there's definitely safeguards like taking multivitamins and like how's the absorption rate and sort of looking at other things, but it is so individual. Um, it comes back to the behavior patterns, Yeah, I think. Yeah, definitely. And I love that you said about the individuality, because I think that's sort of the the one thing that as like as as a system or as a service, there needs to be more of. And I know that that can be difficult when there's a lot of constraints around time and, and money and stuff. But ultimately, you know, like you've just said, everyone's eating disorder is going to be different. So everybody will require different support. Um, yeah. And I also liked what you said about the fact that, um, you know, somebody could be in a large body, but they could still be malnourished. So I think, yeah. you know, I've always been of the a believer as well that with anything getting that regular eat pattern of eating is so important because I think often um you know it, if somebody presented with binge eating disorder then they may think that um you know make an assumption that part of their treatment will be to lose weight and I think a lot mm-hmm. of clients I've worked with have been quite shocked when then you've actually potentially been making them eat more regularly and actually eat more maybe than what they're eating at the moment but it's all about that kind of regular pattern of eating rather than you know restricting for long periods of time and then eating a large amount of food Mm -hmm. by regaining that regular pattern that's kind of the first step to recovery in my eyes absolutely yeah yeah we are aligned in that absolutely (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I guess I guess that kind of um, brings me on to something that I wrote in our notes that when I wrote it made me feel really I literally put in brackets to you not my comment because it made me yeah. feel so awful writing it. Um, but I, mm-hmm, I think <laughs> often these uh, stigmas, as as difficult as they are to say or whatever, it's so important that we do talk about them because it helps other people to break them down. Um, but I think that there is often an assumption that somebody in a larger body will obviously have binge eating disorder. Um, yeah. So could you just explain why that is not obviously or always the case um, in, in case that people might have that internalized in their mind? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, we all have different weight set points and body sizes based on our genetics um, and other factors, uh, weight cycling from dieting or an eating disorder could contribute to um, higher weight, um, our hormones, our medication intake, whatever it might be. Either way, it's all valid. Your body size is your body size. Um, So we can't really assume based on someone's size what's happening. We have to look at their behavior and eating disorder is a mental dis, you know, disorder. And so we're working on healing physically and mentally, but ultimately it's behavioral health. So we have to look at sort of diagnosing and understanding. Um, well, I personally don't diagnose as a dietitian, but support the diagnosis once it's been made by the, someone on the team. So we, yeah, need to see as a society that, um, you know, we can have you know, really large people with anorexia and we can have people in smaller to normal size um, having binge eating disorder. There's definitely statistics that um, there are more people based on some stats. Now, more people in like normal to higher weights in in binge eating disorder, but that's not a hundred percent the case. There's at least like 30% of that population that are in sort of what we call street size bodies, bodies that 
are not plus size in clothing. So you, we don't know what someone, what's happening with somebody um, day to day in, in their, in their health. And so we can't make those assumptions. Yeah, absolutely. Do you, do you think that there are any other stigmas or assumptions that people might make about somebody in a larger body? I mean, lots of assumptions about fat people and I'm, I'm using fat as a neutral descriptor. I'm a fat person, not just identifying as fat, but I, I'm not straight size. I wear plus size clothing um, and like systemically, like mostly fit in chairs, but sometimes they're really tight. And so, um, yeah, this is like a marginalization in a society that I don't like fit into a hundred percent or I'm like limited sort of. So just to give you like a placeholder for everyone out there who doesn't see me. Um, but you know, there are a lot of stereotypes in fat bodies being lazy or like the butt of a joke is accepted still in entertainment today, which is so odd to me, but, um, yeah, it just continuously is perpetuated. Um, and there's a lot of discrimination around, people in larger bodies um, on housing and in work situations getting hired or, you know, all, you know, there's just, there are a lot of layers. So um, that kind of we're it's on topic, but a little tangential just comes back to like helping people heal their relationship to their body in an eating disorder and recovering into a larger body or recovering. They're already in a larger body to go larger when the system is broken is really challenging because I'm encouraging someone to heal in, in a place where they're, they're not fitting They're you know, like physically, literally. So um, that is like a twofold sort of unpacking um, because we really don't have control over our weight and ultimately trying to control it is really dangerous and unhealthy. So so of course I'm a proponent of not doing that, but to encourage someone to push into a direction that's more othering is, is quite challenging. Um, you know, it's about finding empowerment in and owning our marginalization and maybe, you know, for some like building some um, anger, like healthy anger mm-hmm. toward for the situation like this is not okay not an acceptance that I need to run the other way but like you know am I allowed to curse here <laughs> <laughs> this is fucking bullshit um you know like you should be able to fit at a restaurant with your friends in a chair and at a table without having to question it or go ahead of time to see if it, it's going to be comfortable you should be able to walk into a store and buy underwear and a bra and a pair of jeans um, and you should be able to fit on an airplane comfortably without, you know, all these sort of parameters. So yeah, it's just, as I sigh, because, you know, it's going really uphill to, to heal into a, a world that says, this is not okay. Like we're not built, you're, you're not built for it. Yeah. And I think, I don't think I made it very, uh, I don't think the way I asked it earlier was very good, but that was kind of what I was trying to kind of ask earlier was, you know, in terms of recovery into a a body that is basically not accepted by society. Yeah. That I I think is such a difficult thing to navigate because when you're not accepting yourself and then society's not accepting you, you know, that is so challenging to have to to know that in your heart of hearts that that is better for you but then everything around it's almost like everything around you is telling you no but you know deep down that that's you know that's what's best for you and like you said if if your set point is to be at a, a weight that isn't you know necessarily accepted by society I don't know I just feel like that's like another layer of recovery then that you have to go through um yeah 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 to know I, I, I mean I, yeah it comes back to like the the system is broken and we have to navigate the healing of living in a world that doesn't consider 
you in it. Um, which can we can feel empowered to fight it, you know, when we when we realize like how we're harming ourselves because I mean, not to reduce an eating disorder to one thing because it's there's so many facets to it, but this is certainly a big part of it to not fit in to society. Um, sometimes learning that and healing that can be really powerful and empowering. Yeah. I think what you just said there about kind of like, and you know, I don't think it's the case for everybody, but sometimes developing an eating disorder can be an attempt to fit into society more. Mm-hmm. And yeah. So I guess just thinking about, I don't know, I've always thought kind of through recovery. So somebody might embark um, the behaviors in an eating disorder so that they feel more accepted in society mm-hmm. And then they develop an eating disorder. And then I guess there's the realization that that's not the way necessary. Well, it's not the way to feel more accepted in society. So then to come out the other end and then be in a body that isn't accepted by society. How do you support people to, to, to feel accepted or to maybe is it more to accept themselves? I think it also comes back to what we talked about before about body neutrality and body respect. We don't have to like ourselves to take care of ourselves. Um, and we can find ways to navigate the world. Um, sometimes having fun and community of other fat people can be really healing. Um, and then also, you know, for some people it's accepting the fact that um, they need to wear larger clothing than they're wearing. You know, people will maybe wear tighter tighter fitting clothing to um try to like assimilate to um their day-to-day and you know it just is actually physically uncomfortable um of course there's other variables like just having access to getting more clothing and healthcare and all these other pieces but but yeah I think that there are ways to continue our healing and own um or embodiment whatever size that is yeah yeah definitely I just think I don't know I'm a bit lost for words because I'm just kind of struck by I don't know the the difficulty of it and just how I think maybe internalized it all is because I think Mm. I I don't necessarily well I mean you have just said that you know that um being in a large body means that you might be the butt of a joke but I guess thinking about it do you think that a lot of eating disorders or maybe not a lot but sometimes I guess could this be a factor that eating disorders might stem from internalized fat phobia say that one more time so I guess because people not always but often embark on like an eating disorder journey to lose weight do you think Mm -hmm. that eating sometimes an eating disorder might be due to internalized fat phobia definitely a big part of it yes I don't think it's ever 100% just that I think you know we we use coping mechanisms to numb our feeling negative feelings and that's a really big part of it and so, you know, eating disorders are complicated, but yes, I mean, I don't think any person with an eating disorder is untouched by internalized fat phobia and weight stigmatizing care, medical care, and yeah, our capitalistic beauty ideals that are centered, even for people in smaller bodies. It's just like, we all have different shapes and sizes um, and genetics. And like, if we don't, fit this very small percentage of a beauty standard we are othered and that feels like crap for anyone um the other sort of layer for people in larger bodies is the like the system like the barrier to like getting places and health you know that is like a real barrier that to to have to face but but to answer your question I think that yes like it eating disorders are impacted um by internalized fat phobia for all Um, unfortunately and so that's why we have to heal these sort of standards and ideals 
and and learn about our inherent worth you know how do you work through something like that if you're not even necessarily aware of it do you think you have to become aware to then think okay how do I work through this that's a great question and I think because yeah things sometimes have to get bad to get medical care or attention we have such a large percentage of the population chronically dieting their whole lives and never heal their relationship to food and body because it was sort of like subclinical. It never got through the surface to get touched. And sometimes I think when people heal from eating disorders, they're like even more, you know, self-aware and healed compared to just the day-to-day person who is raised in um, diet culture. Yeah, it's funny you say that, actually, because I was talking to a friend yesterday. Um, we were discussing how um, kind of through mental health struggles and through having an eating disorder, we're both so ridiculously self-aware. Um, and I, I said to him, I was like, you know, well, it's, it's a bit shit that we've gone through that and stuff. We probably have a better relationship with food, our body and our mind than anybody because we've had to spend years and years in therapy talking over it. Um, So I think you're so right in terms of kind of, you know, I mean, it's not the way that it should be. Everybody should be able to kind of have that good relationship, but often an eating disorder, I think because it's at your forefront then that it needs to be sorted, it does allow you that, I guess, space and time to kind of think about it all. so thank you so much I feel like I've really like the time has just flown and I feel like I've muddled through whether it's my COVID brain or um I think as well like this is a a, guess a conversation that I've not really had before so I really appreciate you kind of um going along with my multiple askings of questions trying to work um so yeah it's, it's been lovely to um be able to explore that with what you've been wanting to ask I do have a couple of questions from our listeners so somebody has asked when they're when you're in recovery in a larger body is weight gain obviously going to happen forward slash is it necessary yeah I mean that's a great question and I think it does come back to the individual and we just don't know I mean generally speaking all eating disorders are pretty restrictive whether there's binge eating or anorexia or ARFID or, you know, whatever it might be, there's a restriction piece to it. So um, that generally could mean some weight gain, how much and is needed is really unknown and depends on the person. Um, Also weight cycling, what meaning we use that term in dieting more um, where you like restrict your intake, energy intake and lose weight. And then we know um, that people gain that back in more within two to five years, statistically. So that happens in eating disorder work, you know, behaviors too. There's weight cycling because of the restriction piece. So that could change somebody's weight at point. But um, I think what's necessary for healing is having consistent and adequate nourishment. And what that looks like is different for everyone. And moving away from the weight and body size piece and focusing on that behaviors is what's most important. And it's valid to still be concerned about worrying about getting larger, but it may be what you need for your your health, your mental and physical health. And, um, you know, that will be another layer of body image healing. Yeah, I think that's something that I've always kind of tried to hold on in myself when, when I've been in recovery myself is wherever, you know, wherever recovery takes you, that's where you're supposed to be and if if you're in restricting or you're exercising too much but you're in a body shape that is necessarily deemed acceptable that's not where you should be because you're still engaging in restrictive behaviors um and I I think as well sort of just kind of going on to that is to add maybe if if that's something that's worrying you then that's definitely something to work through as well. Um, if if the thought of gaining weight is worrying you, I think that's something that kind of should be considered. Um, mm. And then the other question, I'm not 100% sure, so I'm going to read out word for word what has been asked, um, and then I think maybe we'll kind of discuss it together. So 
Um, my question is, what would you like to ask somebody about recovery in a larger body? And then the question back was coping strategies with adjusting to this. And wondering if folks always improve energy levels and better general physical health when in larger body. And does this help to coping in changes to body? Looking for reminders, incentives to move further into recovery. So I think basically that question is kind of like a two part question of do you have questions for coping strategies for adjusting maybe to a larger body? Um, And then on the other hand, is there always a improvement in energy and general health if you're moving into a larger body? Mm. Uh, Yes, those are great questions. So I think some ways to cope with the change in body is to be aware of what's happening and attend to your needs. So like if my body's changing and it's getting larger, am I wearing clothing that fits is like a a big one and a standard one. and if it's really hard to, yeah, sort of interact with my body changing, maybe I don't need to overly focus with a magnifying glass on every little change that happens to my body. Like maybe that's going to um, sort of distort the reality. So finding, striking a balance of the awareness without getting too hyper-focused on it um, and staying you know, consistent with working with a team of recovery folks, I think can really help that piece. And then the other part of the question of like, will I have more energy and be healthier for it? Um, gaining weight. I mean, if your body is gaining weight, it need it needed to. And so that ultimately in time can feel better. I mean, I think again, it, it comes back to individual needs. And so then if my body changes, what else does it need? And continuing to answer those questions for ourselves. Um, like, do I need different shoes, you know, to feel better when I move my, when I walk and like what feels good in my body um, as it changes? Yeah, that's such an interesting point that you've just made. And I've never thought about that before. But if you had, if you had a pair of shoes that were too small for you, you'd just go yeah. buy a, a pair of shoes that were the right size. But with clothes, it feels like there's so much more of a a hold like it's my fault that I don't fit in these clothes yeah but never the shoes never the shoes yeah it's the clothing's job to fit you and that can be challenging and there can be barriers um many different factors but the emotional piece is really about self-acceptance um that bodies change outside of eating disorders over time in their life cycle and um trying to be open to the fact that the only constant is change really of being human yeah absolutely well Chelsea it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you so thank you so much for today thanks Hannah it's been a pleasure if you enjoyed listening today you won't want to miss next week's episode so be sure to subscribe Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support or talk to someone you trust.